The Legal Lives podcast series, brought to you by Fisher-Jones Greenwood Solicitors. Hello and welcome to the latest episode in the Legal Lives podcast series, brought to you by Fisher-Jones Greenwood Solicitors. I'm Jonathan Hart. During this podcast series, we hear from some of the people behind the real cases that Fisher-Jones Greenwood has taken over the years. We speak to both clients and solicitors will shine a light on a variety of relevant and sometimes very sensitive topics. In this episode, we focus on domestic abuse. We'll hear from someone who's experienced it and the solicitor who represented her. In the year ending March 2019, an estimated 2.4 million adults in the United Kingdom experienced domestic abuse. It's a startling figure. We hope this podcast will help raise awareness of this disturbing phenomenon and the legal and financial support those suffering from it can receive. It's also important to point out that some of this interview will be distressing to hear. And to protect the privacy of our guest, we're not going to refer to her by her real name, and her voice has also been altered after the interview took place. In 2012, Sarah asked Fisher-Jones Greenwood to help her she was in an abusive relationship. This is Sarah's story. Sarah joins me now together with her solicitor, Charlotte Nappett. Hello, Sarah. Hi. And hello, Charlotte. Hello. Sarah, first of all, can I come to you? Thank you for joining us today. Can we start right at the beginning? What was your relationship like at first? Um, I would say our relationship was quite fun. I found him funny. We used to like a lot of the same comedy shows and um, laughed at the same things. And that was really the basis for the beginnings of our relationship. Um, He seemed quite strong and I thought that he would protect me, I guess. When did you realise that things weren't quite right? It was quite early on. um, That's kind of looking back on, on everything. The first time he got angry and lashed out, about something really minor. I think I disagreed with him about something. And it was he'd lashed out things around him rather than at me, um, but it made me feel frightened. How early in the relationship was that? Probably months. It worried me, but then it was, it was something that was kind of reasoned away and um, made into nothing, and there was an apology, and... I just thought that I was overreacting, so it was left there. But I guess the feeling was, if I look back, that I knew that that wasn't okay. So that was an early clue, that was an indicator. And then how often did this start to happen on a more regular basis? When did you really start to think, this is not right at all? I was unhappy for a long time about the way things were. It became more and more regular, I would say. But I believed that those instances were my fault. So maybe I'd done something to trigger it and I wasn't noticing a pattern, but looking back now, it was a pattern. It was more myself that I was questioning at that time. So it was quite regular, I guess, towards the end especially. Did you feel like you were being controlled? Um... At the time, no, I don't think. I felt like I was doing wrong. So, yeah. (laughs) Are you able to tell us what sort of abuse you're talking about? Was it verbal? Was it physical? 
It was a bit of both. Mainly um, what stays with me is the, the emotional side of things, feeling, um, learning to really question myself on everything and being told that I was mad and, you know, not not being able to have an opinion or express an opinion just in case that was wrong. And I had really low self-esteem and felt really lonely as well because to everyone else, he was this fun person, this caring person. So did you try and explain what was happening to other people around you or did you keep it all inside? I had a couple of friends that I would confide in who were really supportive. But ultimately, I really wanted things to work and I wanted to be better. And there was physical as well. And they, those instances, although they were horrible at the time and scary at the time, they're not what I remember now as much. But he was always sorry, so it was done. And then it was fine again for a while. And what was the eventual breaking point for you? What made you say enough is enough? Um, it was when my child was present during an instance and actually cried. Something just clicked. And I, I had left before and always gone back. But this time something was really different. And I, I, even though I still contacted him during that separation, like the final separation, and almost tried to not make it work, but I don't know what I was doing, just the, maybe the pattern of what I'd done before. But something felt different in me and I just knew that I couldn't put my child in that situation um yeah so for people who haven't been through something like this listening to your story they may ask the question why didn't you reach out sooner what would you say to them um people have said that to me or why didn't you just leave I think my reason was because I was in this cycle of feeling really really anxious really upset and then the relief when things were good and you almost feel like you're in a fog and it's just happening but you're even though you know it's not right I think deep down it just you're just there and you want it to be okay I think there are also good sides of him that I kind of wanted to always I wanted to help him I wanted him to be that person that I thought I knew he could be and also the feeling that why would anyone be like that without a reason there must be something there must be something I'm doing and yeah so I stayed I guess I was lonely as well like I was quite isolated I didn't have a huge family network around me and also wouldn't have wanted to tell them because then it like, would be failing it sounds like you almost felt like you were trapped yeah. trying to make things better, blaming yourself, and that was what was stopping you from getting away sooner. Yeah. Yeah. And wanting to say sorry and make it right again and then being it being reinforced that I was all of these things and confused and silly and... Do you think you convinced yourself that this is all your fault? Yeah. Yeah. I'd convinced myself and was convinced by him and... It's just a cycle of, of that until I had 
something else to to protect. Yeah. So you finally realised, particularly with your child, that enough was enough. You decided you had to get legal assistance. Tell us about the first steps of approaching Fisher Jones Greenwood. Was that a difficult process to start with? Um, I actually didn't make the first contact. It was actually through a domestic abuse charity, one of their outreach centres. I used to go into their drop-in and um, they were really great at giving you support and advice and I know that Charlotte did a drop-in with them and they referred me on to her. So Charlotte, if I could turn to you, can you tell us about your role within Sarah's case. Were you there right from the beginning? Well, Sarah first came to me at the drop-in, as she explained, at um, at an outreach centre. My role was to go down there once a week and meet women who needed some support and advice. So I met uh, Sarah at the very initial stages when she had recently left the family home. And she'd come to me for some advice about various issues relating to the breakdown of their relationship. But primarily, she wanted some support and advice also about her child and the arrangements for that child to spend time with their father. Initially, when uh, I met with Sarah at the Outreach Centre, we talked through the various different protective orders that were available for her. She'd left the family home. And at that time, her being away from the family home meant to some extent she was safe from her former partner. But we had to talk through any eventual issues that might arise if he continued to pester or harass her. So we talked through those. Also at that time, her child wasn't seeing their father. We had to discuss what safeguarding issues there might be and I talked Sarah through the various orders that the court could make potentially to safeguard her and her child. That was our very initial meeting. At that meeting, I also assessed her for legal aid because at that time, as a firm, we were offering legal aid for victims of domestic abuse to deal with protective injunctions and also children matters. We established that Sarah was eligible, which meant that I could then take on her case and represent her going forward in relation to those child arrangements and protecting her. So I was in a very privileged position to be able to do that for her. Also, what strikes me at that initial meeting was that Sarah blamed herself for everything. And throughout that meeting, I'm sure she said sorry about 20 times. (laughs) And I said to her, you do realise none of this is your fault. And that stuck with both of us, I think, throughout all the years since then that we've known each other, because none of it was Sarah's fault. And hopefully part of my role also was to help her realise that. Is this a very common thing from people who suffer from domestic abuse? Absolutely. Very sadly, they do tend to blame themselves. Um, But that's often as a result of years, months, however long of psychological abuse and emotional abuse. And there's something called gaslighting, which is whereby... You know, it's a form of abuse which causes someone to actually think that everything is their fault. And they start to believe the perpetrator that um, everything they do is wrong. And it's very difficult. It's almost having to change thought processes. And that can only be done with support, with distance, with levels of counselling as well. And that's really tough. That's really tough for them. You mentioned uh, legal aid before. Mm -hmm. Sarah, did you receive any other support from government agencies? Um, I did deal with the police initially after I reported um, the incidents. I did find them quite reassuring and during the court process I was able to be um, shown in through back entrances so you know I wasn't in contact with any any of the family or sorry any of his his family or or him. 
But the most support I received was obviously from Charlotte um, and from Women's Aid. They um, also worked, I think, with the Shore Start Centres at the time, and they would provide like parenting courses and group counselling courses about moving on. I've made some really good friends through those courses. They also provided childcare at the time for, for my child while I was undertaking these courses and also counselling. So, um, yeah, they, they were really, really the kind of support that I needed at the time. And also should mention the contact centres when we set up the supervised access they were they were really fantastic charlotte you actually said that didn't yeah you? i did yeah there are contact centers throughout the country that are generally run by charities and they are there and available for separated families to use their facilities almost like a play center and depending upon funding some are open every other week or once every four weeks, it's generally for a couple of hours, and uh, parents take their children along to meet with their separated partner. The benefit of it is, is in a supported environment, it's not supervised, notes aren't taken, there's not somebody to intervene, but there is somebody there just to oversee that time spent, and it just means the time spent is literally in the contact centre, and that is it. And they are an extremely valuable resource to separated families, but unfortunately, you know, they require funding to keep them going. But we are grateful to them as family lawyers that we do have some supportive centres still around. Can I ask you, Charlotte, about the process, the legal process in domestic abuse cases? How complicated is it and is it changing? Um, it's not a complicated process, but it is one that involves a lot of time with the client. Um, sometimes the police actually signpost clients to come over to us. The police have various powers these days to impose domestic violence notices on perpetrators. That gives them time to then apply to the court for a domestic violence protection order to prohibit somebody from going back to a home for between I think it's 14 and 21 days. If the police um, do that, they'll often signpost to solicitors so that that person can then get advice. If they've come to us by other means, it generally starts with an initial meeting with our client we explain to them about the various protective orders that the family courts can offer. So the family courts are very separate to the criminal courts that deal with any criminal offences. There are two main types of orders available for victims. There's the non-molestation order, which essentially tells somebody how to behave. And then there's an occupation order, which regulates the occupation of a family home. The non-molestation order is a very serious order to the extent that if somebody breaches that order, so if they break the terms of the order, that's actually a criminal offence for which someone could go to prison for up to five years. The process generally involves completing initial application, um, a detailed statement in support, and depending upon the urgency, sometimes we'll go along to court without the other person knowing to ask for the order to be made in first instance. If the court make that order, we then go back to court, generally within seven days, for there to be a return hearing, at which point the judge will consider whether that order should continue or whether, if it's opposed, there should be further evidence. So although on the face of it, um, it can seem as though quite a straightforward application, sometimes there is a process where statements have to be given and people have to give evidence in court in front of a judge and also in front of the perpetrator. And uh, that can be a very stressful process for them and one that they need support throughout. And from your experience um, as a society, as a country, are we moving in the right direction when it comes to the law and domestic mm -hmm. abuse? Have changes, have enough changes been made in recent years to help the victims? 
There is obviously a heightened awareness of domestic abuse all over social media and the local police are always trying to raise awareness about domestic abuse and the importance of reporting. So the internet, social media, all of that side of things is raising awareness, but it's still up to that victim to find the courage to reach out to begin with, and that's really difficult. There have been various changes in the law over the years. We've got the domestic abuse bill that went into Parliament in July of last year, but because of what happened around Brexit and then obviously the Parliament being solved, we were in a situation where that bill only got put back in, was only reintroduced in December of last year, so it still needs to go through that process. And the idea of that bill is to look at putting further measures in place for victims of abuse in giving evidence in court. Because as it stands at this moment in time, if that victim is giving evidence and the perpetrator or the alleged perpetrator hasn't got legal representation, there's always a risk that alleged perpetrator may be asking the victim questions in court, which can be very distressing. And it's important for anybody giving evidence that they're able to give their best possible evidence to enable the court to make a decision. And it's simply not possible for them to give the best possible evidence if you're being cross-examined by the person that has potentially abused you. So that's one part of the domestic abuse bill. There are other aspects as well. But you also see such things as Claire's Law came in. That was uh, in 2014, which gave people the opportunity to have their partner checked for any previous domestic abuse offences. And also we've had the Protection of Freedom Act, which came in, which now offers two further offences, criminal offences, in relation to stalking. So there is a greater awareness of domestic abuse and there are changes in the law happening. Whether it's enough, well, I don't think it's ever going to be enough. You mentioned legal aid before. What financial support is currently available to victims of domestic abuse? It's very limited now, unfortunately. We still have legal aid for victims of domestic abuse. If you are a victim of domestic abuse and you want to apply for a protective order, you are automatically eligible for legal aid. If you're seeking legal aid representation regarding financial divorce or children matters, you need to prove that you've been a victim of domestic abuse. And the legal aid agency who provide legal aid funding have a criteria that you have to meet to be able to prove that you're a victim of domestic abuse. And it's not very easy for some victims to be able to pass through that gateway. And unfortunately, due to some changes in the way in which funding is structured around legal aid, it has meant fixed fees, which has meant some firms have not been in a financial position to continue to offer legal aid. Because of that, there has been a reduction in the number of firms who offer it, um, which means lack of resources to victims of domestic abuse, unfortunately. There are other charitable organisations out there who offer telephone line assistance and are able to provide some assistance for victims of domestic abuse. In terms of our firm, although we don't offer legal aid in relation to domestic abuse applications and children and finances, we do still offer legal aid for public law care proceedings, which is where we represent parents in relation to local authority proceedings when there's a risk of a child being taken into care. So you've both known each other for quite a long time now. Mm. It must be quite something, the relationship that you create between the two of yourselves, mm. um, almost like friends. Well, I always feel as though I'm in an extremely privileged position to represent victims of domestic abuse. You know, I'm given this opportunity and I like to get to know my clients as well as I possibly can. And I, I think my relationship with Sarah, in actual fact, although we worked together and we dealt with Sarah's case, we remained in contact and we've stayed in contact ever since through various different life events, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Yeah. I think she's an earth angel. She's helped me so much and not just during that time but afterwards as well in terms of my confidence and, you know, I can't thank you enough. Tell us about your life now. Um, 
yeah, it's a complete contrast to how it was before. It's really good. My child's doing really well at school. They're happy and kind and they've got lots of friends. I'm really proud of them. I've actually met someone new and um, we're, we're married now. He's my best friend. And I think the most important thing is that if we argue, um, as we do sometimes, I always feel safe and protected and I'm working in a job that I'm really passionate about and really excited for the future. So I feel really lucky. For anyone out there going through what you have been through, what would your advice be? I think it's quite difficult to advise because everyone's situation is different. Um, But that a partner should build you up and support you rather than knock you down, um, control you or make you feel afraid. Um, And that if something doesn't feel right, please reach out to someone that you can trust as soon as you feel strong enough, even if it's just to talk, even if you don't feel like you want to leave, because there's so much support out there that and agencies that provide like discreet ways of contacting them. I think there's apps and that sort of thing so that you could make contact. Um, yes, a relationship should feel safe, so reach out and know you deserve better. Charlotte, I'm sure you'd echo those thoughts. Absolutely, completely. The hardest thing is for somebody to reach out for some support from anybody, be it a friend, be it support agency or a lawyer. As a solicitor's firm, we can provide victims with that initial advice and support that they need so they know what options are available to them legally. And also, as a firm, because lots of us in the family team work with domestic abuse victims, we also know lots of other charities and support services so we can signpost them. So the most important thing is to come and get some legal advice and support. And we can also give reassurance that the family courts fully understand the impacts of domestic abuse and in any family proceedings to include children proceedings, the court's first consideration must always be safety and making sure that that child is safe um, or children are safe of that family. So any victim needs to have that reassurance as well that that's always taken into account. Well, thank you, Charlotte, for sharing your expertise today. It's been very interesting. Thank you. And what I would say is if you feel that you're at immediate risk of harm at this moment listening to this podcast, um, I would always urge you to contact your local police. Thank you. And, of course, thank you to Sarah particularly. It must have been very difficult to talk to us about this, but we really appreciate it. Thank you. Our thanks once again to Sarah and to Charlotte Knappett, solicitor and partner for Fisher-Jones Greenwood. We hope this podcast may help other victims of domestic abuse. And for more information on legal aid and how Fisher-Jones Greenwood can help you, please visit fjg.co.uk and go to our family law section. We trust you found this Legal Lives podcast compelling. Don't forget to subscribe to hear more in the series and please feel free to rate, review and sign up. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.